Welcome to the First Church Orlando podcast. Here you will find recordings of weekly sermons, devotions, interviews, and seminar recordings from the First United Methodist Church of Orlando. For more information about First Church Orlando, please visit our website at firstchurchorlando.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now, enjoy the podcast. Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak in tongues of human beings and of angels, but I don't have love, I'm a clanging gong or a clashing cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and I know all the mysteries and everything else, and if I have such complete faith that I can move mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give away everything that I have and hand over my own body to feel good about what I've done, but I don't have love, I receive no benefit whatsoever. Love is patient. Love is kind. It isn't jealous. It doesn't brag. It isn't arrogant. It isn't rude. It doesn't seek its own advantage. It isn't irritable. It doesn't keep a record of complaint. It isn't happy with injustice, but is happy with the truth. Love puts up with all things, trusts in all things, hopes for all things, endures all things. Love never fails. As for prophecies, they will be brought to an end. As for tongues, they will stop. As for knowledge, it will be brought to an end. We know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, what is partial will be brought to an end. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, reason like a child, think like a child. But now that I have become a man, I've put an end to childish things. Now we see a reflection in a mirror. Then we will see face to face. Now I know partially, but then I will know completely in the same way that I have been completely known. Now faith, hope, and love remain, these three, and the greatest of these is, anybody know? Love. The word of God for the people of God. And now, O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of each heart be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. How many have been to Disney World, Walt Disney World? How many have been in the Haunted Mansion? All right, most, that's what I suspected. So when you're in the final, you know, you've been in line for an hour or so, when you finally are making it to the door, that last section of the line, what's on the left before you get inside, Dave? Tombstones, right? The family cemetery, right? So there's the, the tombstones or the headstones along the way, and they all say a little something. One says, at peaceful rest lies Brother Claude planted here beneath this sod. Another reads, rest in peace, Cam Irving. You probably should have thought of swerving. And one more, loyal friend, Esteban Pine, no longer has to wait in line. Now we think these are probably fictional. We're assuming that there's no bodies that we know buried at Disney World that we know of, right? Uh, but here are some real famous ones, uh, tombstones. Jesse James, the famous outlaw, his reads, 
murdered by a traitor and coward whose name is not worthy to appear here. Uh, Rodney Dangerfield, remember Rodney? Yeah, the comedian. His tombstone says, there goes the neighborhood. And Winston Churchill, the famous prime minister of England, his tombstone says, I am ready to meet my maker. Whether my maker is prepared for the great ordeal of meeting me is another matter. Those are true. We call those epitaphs. And they used to be more common. People would put these, inscribe them on their headstones, their grave markers, their tombstones. Not so much anymore if you go to any kind of modern cemetery or see one lately. Most of the time, unless someone can afford one big one, it just says the name, date of birth, date of death, separated by a dash. So now instead of a, an epitaph, which is what we call this, to summarize our life, now our lives are just summarized by a dash. How sad is that? Now, a lot can't be said on a piece of granite. Uh, more often these days, our lives, at the end of our lives, are summed up in eulogies and obituaries. Eulogy at a, at a memorial service, obituary in a newspaper. Through my years in ministry, I've heard a lot of eulogies. I've read a lot of obituaries. There's a few things they always have in common. Where was this person born? Who's in their family? Where did they go to school? What were their professional accomplishments? What associations were they part of? What titles, what honors did they earn or were awarded? What were their hobbies and interests? And then during the eulogy, usually somebody shares some funny memories at the person's expense. They're not there to defend themselves. Usually some peculiar habits or idiosyncrasies. Is that how we want to be remembered? I mean, think about that for a moment. When, when you are gone, is that what you want people to be saying about you? Well, they went to this university and this is what they did. Do we want to be remembered for what we did? Or do we want to be remembered for the content of our character, the impact we made on other people's lives? I found an interesting experience or exercise a few years ago called the six-word memoir or epitaph. In other words, what do you want on your tombstone? I don't mean the frozen pizza. The six words that if it appeared on your tombstone or gravestone, what would you want those words to be? How do you summarize your life in just six words? It's an interesting experiment. At the time, I wrote loved generously, lived courageously, died empty, as in, didn't leave anything on the field. I lived up to my potential. Loved generously, lived courageously, died empty. Now notice, I didn't say vegetarian, or that I ride a Harley, or that I grow bonsai trees, or how I vote, or, or any of the, where I went to school, any of those things. I didn't even say uh, dad, husband, which you know are incredibly important to me. I didn't say pastor. Rather, I hope that as I live my life that it's, it's about how I live that I'm remembered, not just about what I did. And the more I've thought about it in the years since, I think I can narrow it down to just four words. If I really, this is what I want my life to be. I'm not saying I do this perfectly, I don't. But if I can narrow it down to just four words, I think they'd be these. Loved and was loved. I would love that to be about my life. 
You know, that that is how I'm remembered. He loved and was loved. That's just four words. We're talking about love a lot. The songs today were about love. For the last three weeks, we've been talking about love. We're talking about love all summer long. It's our series. We're calling it Love Is and Love Does. And that's how we're structuring it. For three weeks, we've been talking about what love is, looking at some classic texts from Scripture, and then we're going to talk about what love does. It's based on our um, church vision to seek and love God, love and serve people, which, by the way, is not a bad eight-word epitaph, seek and love God, love and serve people. But we're going to talk about what it means now. We're going to start shifting. How do I put love into action? Because love is an action word. How do I love God by seeking God? How do I love people by serving people? Well, you can't have a conversation about the Bible and love without reading 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, If you are familiar with the passage I just read, uh, if you've heard it before, where were you most likely, if not Sunday morning? A wedding, right? I mean, this, it's the, the wedding passage. It was read at my wedding. I've read it at countless weddings. Here's the interesting thing. It's highly appropriate for a marriage, I think, but it's not really about marriage. It, it's really about community. 1 Corinthians 13 is written to a community that wasn't doing a good job loving each other. They were struggling with that. And so it's about, hey, hey, this is really what it's all about. This is what love looks like. It begins with, if I speak in the tongues of human beings and of angels, but I don't have love, I'm a clanging gong or clashing symbol. I'm just making noise. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all the mysteries and everything else, and I have such complete faith that I can move mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give away everything I have and hand over my own body to feel good about what I've done, but I don't have love, I receive no benefit. It sounds to me a little bit like an obituary. Uh, Pastor Raines was multilingual, speaking proficiently in the languages of humans and angels. He had extensive knowledge and work in the fields of prophecy and knowledge. His faith was noteworthy and more than capable of relocating mountains. His generosity and philanthropic commitments were without equal. But he was lousy at love. Right? I mean, this what it sounds like. You know, like, oh, you know, here are all these impressive things, right? What was going on, we think, in this church in Corinth is that all these people were claiming to have these incredible gifts and abilities, but rather than using them for the good of others, it became a source of spiritual pride. It became a, a game, an unhealthy game of sort of spiritual one-upmanship. I'm more important. I'm more valuable than you. The one who had this ability to speak in tongues was sure they were more spiritual than the one who could prophesy. And the one who prophesied was sure they were more spiritual than the one who had faith. And the one that that thought they were more spiritual uh, because they were uh, more spiritual than the person who was generous. And that person thought they were more spiritual than the person who could perform miracles, if you can imagine that. All the while, nobody loved each other. All these amazing things, and yet they didn't love each other. And Paul, who wrote this, ultimately calls that childish. Eventually, you got to put away childish things. You think you're so spiritual, but you don't love each other. In other words, it's, it's possible to be incredibly talented. It's possible to be highly educated. It's impossible to be very important in the world. But Paul says, if you don't love, it just doesn't 
matter. It doesn't add up to a, a hill of beans. I mean, even in, a, even in a church like ours, we have beautiful buildings and ideal location and great programs and wonderful music, average pastors, right? But he's saying, like, if it isn't rooted, grounded in love, it's nothing. Paul writes in Ephesians 3, 17 through 19, have strong roots in love. I ask that you'll have the power to grasp love's width and length and height and depth together with all believers. I ask that you'll know the love of Christ that is beyond knowledge so that you'll be filled with the fullness of God. Be filled with the fullness of God. What a great expression. You see the, the metric, I don't know if you're in your business, you talk about metrics of success. Like the metrics for assessing whether a church is good or bad or strong or weak aren't how big the budget or staff are, or how great the facilities are, or what kind of style of worship we have, or how good is the attendance, or what, what activities are listed in the bulletin, or how, how good is your online viewership, or what's your latest ministry innovation. According to scripture, the metric for a strong, healthy church is love. Do they love each other? The question we've always got to be asking is, do we love God? Do we really love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength? Jesus said that's the great commandment. Do we really love our neighbors as we love ourselves? Or, or go even further, what about our enemies? Even, do we know who our enemies are? Do we love them? Or what about outsiders? When a guest comes and visits with us or when we're serving out in the community or out in the world like our high schoolers are, would people say, wow, they really loved each other and they really loved us? John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, said, love is the highest gift of God. Humble, gentle, patient love that all visions, revelations, manifestations, whatever, all are little things compared to love. And all the gifts above mentioned are either the same with or infinitely inferior to love. I, I think, as I've said in the last couple of weeks, the problem we had with love is we don't really understand biblically what it means. We still think of love as a feeling. How do you know you love somebody? You feel Love, But the Bible describes love as something very different. So we started a couple weeks ago with 1 John 4 and just simply said, we love because God first loved us. God is love. How do we know that God is love? He sent Jesus. That's how God describes love. Remember John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he sent his son. Jesus is the demonstration of God's love. Last week we read from Song of Songs, it just simply said, love is stronger than death, as unrelenting as the grave, stronger than rushing waters. And then today, 1 Corinthians 13 tells us in very direct and, and clear ways, this is how you love. If you want to be like God, this is how you love. Here's what you do. Love is patient. Everyone who's patient, raise your hand. We struggle with patience, right? Especially with the people we say we love sometimes. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love puts up with all things, trusts in all things, hopes for all things, endures all things. 
Love never fails. Love is never jealous. It doesn't brag. It isn't arrogant. It isn't rude. It doesn't seek its own advantage. It isn't irritable. It doesn't keep a record of complaints. It isn't happy with injustice. Did you hear any feeling words in that? None of them are feeling words, right? I mean, here's the interesting thing. I can do all of those things and not feel love. I don't have to feel love to you to be kind to you. I don't have to feel love to you and not be, and, and, and not be arrogant, right? It doesn't have to have anything to do with feeling. But think about the other way. Think about the people that you would say you love the most. Like just the people that first come to mind, who do you love? Have, have you ever been impatient with them? Have you ever said something unkind to one of the people you say you love? Have you ever felt jealous toward a friend or a sibling? Ever had a selfish moment around the people you love? Ever been irritable with the people you love? Ever kept a record of hurts, frustrations, irritations, and brought them up in an argument? Yeah? Well, by the way, we all have and we all do. But isn't that interesting? The people we feel love for, we can be jerks to. The people we feel love toward, we can treat like trash. And I can treat a, a stranger in what the Bible says is a very loving way. I can be kind. I can be respectful. I don't have to be arrogant or rude to anyone. The great thing is when we can bring those things together, that I feel love to, toward you and I express that love in my words and deeds, right? That it comes together. I love the way the message version of 1 Corinthians says it. Love never gives up. Love cares more for others than for self. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. Love doesn't strut. Love doesn't have a swelled head. It doesn't force itself on others. It isn't always about me first. It doesn't fly off at the handle. It doesn't keep score of the sins of others. It doesn't revel when others grovel. It takes pleasure in the flowering of truth. It puts up with anything. Trust God always. Always looks for the best, never looks back, but keeps going to the end. And the how is what it's telling us here. This is how you love. And isn't it interesting that the Bible feels the need to tell us how to love as though we don't really understand it? I mean, is it, a, is it suggesting that we're ignorant? Is the Bible trying to, to claim that we don't really get what love is or that we just forget or that we're just lazy or that we're not very good at doing it or that we're selfish or that we just need to be reminded? If you say love, this is how you love. The more I read and study the Bible, the more I'm convinced that the Bible is primarily, and I say primarily, I mean overwhelmingly, a book about relationships. If you want to get good at relationships, read the Bible. That's primarily what it's about. Of course, primarily it's about our relationship with God. This is who God is. This is how you relate to that God. But that relationship with God gets lived out in our relationships with others. So the Bible is primarily about how we relate to each other. 
how we have sustainable, healthy, nurturing, interdependent relationships with people. It begins in the home. It extends to the neighborhood. It extends to strangers. It even includes enemies. Jesus said, if you love those who love you, why should you be commended? Even sinners love those who love them. Instead, love your enemies. If you do, you'll have a great reward. You will be acting the way the children of the Most High act. For he is kind, God is kind to the ungrateful and to wicked people. Think about the Ten Commandments. What are the Ten Commandments ultimately about? How we love God, how we relate to each other, how we love each other. If you read the New Testament, over and over you'll find two phrases, one another and each other. Over and over, love each other. Forgive one another, support one another, comfort one another, encourage one another, speak truth to one another. Galatians 5.22 says, when the Holy Spirit controls our lives, we'll produce this kind of fruit, fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That could be a good summer series, but all of it would be about relationship. When the Holy Spirit controls my life, it affects how I relate to people. How many of us learned as children the golden rule? Treat people in the same way you want to be treated. And where did we learn that? Jesus. Not your third grade teacher. Jesus. Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers once said, we love a person. When we love a person, we accept a person exactly as is. The lovely with the unlovely, the strong along with the fearful, the true mixed in with the facade. And Anne Lamott writes, when you're with an awful person, you're not around a villain. You're with a person who's suffering deeply, starving for love. We're called to love even the unlovely, even the one we perceive to be a villain. This is what it means to be a Christian, to love others the way God loves us. And in fact, we probably can only begin to grasp the love of God for us as we learn to love others. So I started all this by talking about our, our epitaph, right? Our tombstone. What, what do you want on your tombstone? When your life is done and, and all that's remembered of you is summarized in granite, what do you want to be remembered for? I want to be remembered for love. I confess I got work to do, but I want to be remembered for love. I want First Church to be known for love. Let's pray. Lord, help us to love as you love. Help our senior high mission team as they go forward to love as you love. Help us to know and, and love each other. and Help us to know and love our neighbors. Help us to know how to love. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and that you will listen again in the future. If you enjoyed today's message, we hope you'll subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform and share it with others on social media. 
for more information about First Church Orlando, please visit our website at firstchurchorlando.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If this podcast is a valuable resource to you, we invite you to give to this ministry by making a financial contribution at firstchurchorlando.org forward slash give. Now, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.